This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Now, South Africa and India have called for the World Trade Organization, that is WTO for short, to suspend intellectual property rights related to COVID-19 to ensure that not only the wealthiest countries will be able to access and afford the vaccines, medicines, and other new technologies needed to control this pandemic. The pharmaceutical industry and many high-income countries staunchly oppose the move to waive intellectual property rights, which they say will stifle innovation when it is needed most. And there is nothing new, of course, about the decades-long debate over intellectual property rights and life-saving medicines. But as we have passed the one-year mark of the COVID-19 global pandemic, with a handful of new vaccines already approved for emergency authorization and millions of people recently inoculated, it is becoming increasingly likely that the world may soon look quite lopsided in one distinct way. Hundreds of millions of residents in wealthy nations will be vaccinated before billions of people in developing countries have similar access countries like South Africa and a global advocacy campaign is currently seeking to exempt COVID-19 vaccines from intellectual property protections, contending that this action would mobilize additional manufacturers and help address vaccine access disparities. Others argue that, of course, doing so could dissuade additional manufacturing investments and undermine long-run vaccine development, including to address emerging COVID-19 variants. Now, joining us at this time to unpack this issue is well-respected and highly regarded medical professional Dr. Taleng Mufukeng, affectionately known as Dr. T. She is the United Nations Special Rapporteur, I pray to the radio deities that I said that word right, <laughs> on the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. She is also a medical doctor at the DISA Clinic in Johannesburg with a focus on sexual and reproductive health and rights, as well as a senior lecturer and a broadcaster. And she joins us as a guest on the COVID report at this time. Dr. T, it is an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us here on the COVID report. Hello, good evening. I hope you can hear me well. I'm competing with the hardy dogs here. I think it's time to come back home. So there's lots of birds making lots of noise, but I'm glad you can hear me. Thank you so much for joining us and helping us unpack this issue. Let's start off by talking through this process of waiving intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines. Could you take us through the importance of this process? So what's important to understand, right, is that any discovery around the world can be registered, right, and be subjected to the intellectual property laws, right, which means that there is someone who owns that particular intervention or invention or discovery. And in this instance, when we're talking about the COVID vaccine, there are many processes, of course, that go into making a vaccine. And so there are many intellectual property rights that are held by many different entities that at the end of the day combined make up the COVID-19 vaccine. And so the importance, right, I think for me, which is key, which we always forget, is that this research and development, the R&D for the COVID-19 vaccine, was actually supported by public funding, which now pharmaceutical companies are wanting to put profits before saving lives. Yet, the very claim on intellectual property that they have 
on the discovery or on the development of the vaccine was actually supported by public funds. And I think that's where the outcry comes from, is that then pharmaceutical companies want to then hold on to the scientific knowledge and the know-how and the recipe to making the vaccine and leaving everyone else without the knowledge to be able to produce and manufacture vaccines for themselves. And withholding onto those rights comes a delay. And if this call of waiving intellectual property rights for vaccines is approved by the World Health Organization, how long do you imagine it would take for South Africa to develop the vaccine? And would that not cause a delay as compared to importing the vaccine from companies that are already providing them? Because there is a strong likelihood that it will take a considerable amount of time, even several Mm. years before we Mm. obtain internal optimal manufacturing capacity. Mm. So this Mm. actually raises the question of whether today's vaccines would even be relevant at that point in time, you know, with the delay in actually getting to waive the intellectual property Mm. rights. And, you know, new variants are providing resistance to vaccine formulations currently available. So do you not Mm -hmm. foresee these efforts all being in vain? Not at all. Here's the other thing that we also don't often get to hear about. It's the fact that even the pharmaceutical companies right now that have the rights that are producing the vaccines are actually failing to keep up with the demand. So even if we say, keep your IP rights, just give us the vaccine at the right price, they are going to fail to do that. They are already having backlogs of millions of doses as we speak. So whether or not it's a public good, whether or not the pandemic at the scale that it is, if you are just looking at the process of manufacturing and the development, they themselves cannot supply the market with what the market needs, right? Secondly, you are raising a very good point about, so if people then temporarily waive the IP rights and the knowledge is available, will countries be able to then actually produce for themselves? And the answer is absolutely yes, they can. When you're looking at the African continent, if you're looking at South Africa, when you're looking at Morocco, when you are looking at Egypt, for example, and many others, we do have capacity to produce particular products, medical products and pharmaceutical products. And we know that in South Africa, for example, in the plant in the Eastern Cape, there's a pharmaceutical company there that was already asking South Africa to assist the manufacturer part of the vaccine. But the problem was that those, I suppose, productions were not for South Africa's benefit. They were going to be exported elsewhere. And remember that because the IP rights are held by multiple entities at different stages, it's very important for countries, especially in the developing world, to ask themselves real questions about why have they not been developing the sciences and the pharmaceutical capacities. But that is in no way good enough reason for people to hold on to IP rights. I think we can have both conversations at the same time. And it's very, very important. And what's also key is that a lot of brain drain, right? I don't know if you guys, maybe I'm too old, I'm exposing my age. But when we were growing up, there was this thing called the brain drain, right, out of Africa, where you find you have unethical recruitment practices that are happening by high-income countries, usually in the global north. And they were poaching and taking away academics, researchers, scientists, nurses, doctors, and then employing them in their countries, leaving Africa with that huge vacuum, not only of resources, but also of human capital. And those are the discussions that we need to have to say that COVID-19 is exposing existing 
inequalities in global health. Very insightful stuff, Doctor. Now, in the event that this conversation around IP rights as it relates to the vaccines develops the way we'd all like it to be developed, could you talk us through what kind of control processes you see being put in place to ensure that the quality of vaccines is not compromised? No, it won't be compromised at all because scientific standards and quality are applicable across the board, right? So we also have to reject this idea within ourselves that if something is produced in Africa, by default, there's something around quality that needs to be questioned. Remember, a lot, a lot of manufacturing happens in the global south. It happens in Asia. In fact, India would be a key partner in production and in pharmaceutical production of the vaccine. And India right now is in the middle of one of the biggest disasters right, around this time of COVID that we've seen. And so by delaying more and more and more, it means even that capacity that countries have, they will no longer have because of the impact and the fallout that will happen because of COVID-19. And so there are definite issues around pharmacovigilance, which means that, of course, patients need to be surveilled. It means that people, you know, especially now for us, for example, in South Africa, with our trial 3B, right, of the Sisonga trial, there's a lot there of information that they are collecting from us. Thank goodness I got vaccinated a few weeks ago, and I know the process, right, of consenting to that. So the standards are quite competitive with the rest of the world. And I would argue, in fact, it's the knowledge, right, of the developed countries, it's the knowledge of the richer countries in the global north that, in fact, Africa can lead. But they will find every single thing to hold us back. And it depends on us. And our focus and our vision for our own countries, but also for the region. We can't think of South Africa alone, for example. We have the SADC, right? The Southern Africa Development Community. How is the vaccine development and manufacturing in South Africa going to impact Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and Botswana? Right? Those are very important questions we need to be asking. And sharing the knowledge gives us an opportunity to have true solidarity and true cooperation between the nations. Because I'll have you know, right, if African countries could also poach the scientists back into Africa, those people in the north, they would look like they're the developing countries. It's our human capital, it's our brains, it's our resources, it's the minerals that have been extracted from this continent for centuries. And right now, the minerals, the gold, the brains, it's the people. And if those people had to come back, I can tell you right now, those health systems, whether you are thinking about the, any country you can think about in the world, they will collapse because most of them are held. The backbone of those health systems are the people, the black people from the African continent. And I just want to touch on what you've just said, Dr. T, concerning the brain drain and African people being the backbone of developments across the the diaspora. And apart from this waiver of intellectual property rights, wouldn't you say a tech transfer also needs to be made to provide us with internal capacity to manufacture? And what structures would we need to set in place to equip us with the capacity to manufacture? Most of all, how important would it be for us to provide support to our pharmaceutical firms in the cause? It would be very important, but what's more important than the government Right, the government should have its own state-owned and run enterprise that looks at pharmaceuticals, right? And because there's no use then doing all of this work, 
right, to then develop and support and enrich the private sector. So we need the government, which should have had the foresight, and without COVID, by the way, to actually support a proper state-owned enterprise that's looking at pharmaceutical development. We have, imagine how many ARVs get imported into South Africa every year. How many test kits are being imported into South Africa every year? Do you know that there is no single country in the African continent that produces its own condoms? Every single condom that's been used on the African continent is imported. Now, that tells you the state of readiness. But that does not mean that people must hold on to intellectual property rights. Because we know in terms of the budgeting, right, many countries like South Africa have been able to mobilize resources to respond to this pandemic and this emergency need. So I have no doubt that we have the hands, we have the know-how, we have the scientists, and we have the land in this country to be able to rapidly scale up manufacturing and production that is required. But again, and this is a very important point that I keep going to, COVID-19, all that it's doing is exposing our lack of planning, it's exposing the lack of resourcing, and it's exposing the lack of foresight and vision that many countries, under whatever leader they are under, have been subjected to. And I think to recover from this, we need leadership, we need stewardship, we need transparency. Because a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are forcing governments to sign non-disclosure agreements. So you and I, having this conversation, are just coming up with hypothetical numbers, hypothetical problems, because we actually do not know what is it that these countries, including South Africa, have been signing and agreeing to. Allegedly, to make the point really strong, one of the pharmaceutical companies wanted sovereign states, sovereign assets of South Africa. How do you demand sovereign assets of a country as security? It shows you the arrogance. It shows you how incredibly difficult a time we are in, where you are dealing with individuals who do not see other people's humanity. And so we can't support the government, even as civil society, as activists. We can't support the government because we don't know what they are signing and they will not say either. So it becomes very difficult to think about a solution when the very people who are supposed to be assisting are hiding behind non-disclosure agreements. And so that's the difficulty that we have right now. I can hear the passion in your voice oozing out of it as you go over everything that you've just covered in your answer to that question. Now, Dr. T, I'd like to take this opportunity to lean into your area of expertise through the wonderful work that you do with the United Nations as its special rapporteur. And again, I pray to those radio deities (laughs) on the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. With regards to this call to waive intellectual property rights related to the vaccine in your in your opinion and your expertise do you think this call to waive these ip rights will infringe on human rights and more specifically the right to access this medicine as and when we may feel we need to and if you see it infringing on this right how do you see it infringing on this right so it infringes on the multiple rights right so if you think of the right to health The right to health is an inclusive right. It's a right that encompasses the underlying determinants of health, right? So we mean, for example, the right to access 
sanitation and free water, the right to information, the right to sexual and productive health rights, for example, and the right to safety and security, and the right to freedom of movement. And you can think just, if I say to you now, our level five lockdown regulations, how many of those rights were infringed? Mm. A lot of them. A lot of them. And so the issue of COVID-19, it's a moment in time. It's a disaster, right? But it's linked to so many other important rights. And I like your question about human rights because often when we speak about these issues, you know, people think it's just an issue, you know, just an issue about activists and everything. And people don't quite understand why it's so, so important to think about these issues as rights. You have a right to life. You have a right to the prevention, treatment, and control of disease, right? Including access to essential medicines which the COVID-19 vaccine is, by the way. So when we are talking about access to the vaccine, access to testing kits, when you're talking about access to treatment, you know, the oxygen, and you often hear in the news telling you about the, and I was listening to your COVID report, you know, sometimes when the curve is so high, the rates are so high, people will often talk about bed space and the fact that there are no ICU beds. What of those are infringing on your human rights? All of those. And which is why in my work as the United Nations Special Repertoire, we are always reminding government. In the United Nations, we call them member states, right? So we know our country, South Africa, and it's our government. But at the UN, they are the member states, right? And so the member states have core obligations when it comes to the right to health. And one of them, very importantly, is to take deliberate, concrete and targeted steps towards a national health strategy and a plan of action. And if I ask you right now, when we responded to the pandemic, when COVID first became a huge problem for us in this country, did you think we were prepared with a national public health strategy and a plan of action? That's my question. Were we prepared? In if short? you had to look back and think, hmm... To give you an answer in short, no, doctor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this is why it's a human rights issue because states have an obligation to respect, to protect, to fulfill their right to health. And more importantly, what I just stated now is one of the minimum core obligations that every state should be able to actually guarantee. And not many countries around the world guarantee that. We can look to New Zealand. Right, is a great example of a country or a member state that was able to protect and to fulfill and to respect its citizens' right to health. Not many other countries can we point to and say truly, 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 there was no discrimination. I mean, think about how people said, oh, lockdown is happening, go home, go home. And I remember the time I was still a commissioner, and the question I asked was, where is home? When you say people must go home, if I'm already experiencing homelessness and you say go home, what do you mean? If I'm an LGBTIQ person or maybe my family, right, have cut me off completely because I came out to them as gay or lesbian or trans woman or trans man, when you say go home, what do you mean? And so there's something to be said about social protection and social security that for so long we take for granted. And it became obvious 
even how our leaders were communicating the messaging around COVID-19 and what citizens should be doing. Where is home if you are a survivor of gender-based violence and home is where your perpetrator is, where your abuser is? And now we are saying, go home. You are under lockdown. Right? Mm. That's what it meant. And speaking of the infringement of human rights under stricter levels of lockdown, I mean, there was a time when we couldn't even buy lip balm or, or hairbands from, <laughs> from clicks. So there have been talks and fear of a looming COVID-19 third wave in the country. So if South Africa does experience a third wave and higher alert levels are implemented, how will the vaccine rollout be affected? Would you foresee stricter levels of lockdown, perhaps restricting the access of people going to their nearest vaccination centre and being inoculated? I think there's a few answers to that question. So I think the biggest consideration would be that you want to minimise loss, right? to the economy because people's jobs and livelihoods, right, depend on on a thriving economy. Um, So that's probably one of the first considerations that perhaps the people in leadership will consider. But the other thing is that South Africans, many of them are still waiting for that 350, right? That initial one. That one, yeah, like a name. They're still waiting for it. So if we are going to implement a stricter lockdown, the question is what kind of social security and protections are people then being afforded? That's the question we need to be asking. And I fully agree. We need to do everything we can to slow down the progress of disease, to slow down the spread of the virus and all of that. I fully agree. But I think we need to show up. We need to show up for people who are already vulnerable, who are already living in the margins of society. And we can't just leave that to chance. You know, you just close your eyes. And now you just pretend like it's not there just because your eyes are closed. I think there's a lot to be said about the types of social response and social security that South Africans generally have on any other day. And so for me, it would be a consideration and a balance, which sometimes you may not find. And so if you ask me, if I had to sacrifice people or the economy, I would sacrifice the economy because people will die. But the economy will survive. It will revive, right? And so without people, even if you say, no, let's prioritize the economy, we can prioritize the economy. People go to work and they die on their way to work or they get the virus in between everything and they die anyway. Because I don't know you will prioritize the economy. But if you prioritize people, make sure that people are healthy and safe and have a vaccine, you can reopen the economy with the much healthier workforce and do things properly long-term. But this thing of nibbling and just taking different pieces here and there and hoping for the best is not what's going to get us where we need to, unfortunately. Maybe a level three with certain amendments that could possibly work, but I doubt that a hard lockdown level five right now in this country is not going to happen. And I know I always laugh at people saying, oh, South Africans are so rebellious, South Africans don't listen, what, 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 what. But when you are reading every single day, about how many billions are unaccounted for in the public sector, how many billions are misspent, and how many billions, right, have gone to corrupt activities. And you sit and think, but why do we have a vaccine in this country? Why does the Ministry of Finance keep saying the fiscus isn't a tight spot? Who put it in the tight spot? And because there's no accountability in this country, citizens do not have the necessary hope and trust in the leadership. And that's the problem right now. It's much bigger than COVID. 
Indeed, indeed. Now, Dr. T, this next question is the one that I have no shame in admitting I am looking forward to getting your insight on the most out of all of the questions that we've posed to you over the course of our discussion. And I'm just as excited because you already mentioned that you have already been vaccinated through your capacity as a medical professional. So I'm also leaning on that direct experience of receiving the vaccine to shed light on the matter aligned to the question I'm about to pose to you. In terms of the perceived protracted delay in the rollout of the vaccines here on South African shores, the fact that we have yet to cross the 400,000 mark in terms of of total Mm. vaccines administered here in the country. We are only some 5,000 away from crossing that mark as of today. Do you Mm -hmm. think the fears and concerns from citizens around the fact that we are still so far away from vaccinating the number of people we need to in order to achieve this hallowed herd immunity, do you think these fears and concerns are justified? And if so, what methods do you think our government should consider taking to help ease these fears and concerns? Hey, what we lack in this country, and we've lacked it for many years, is just basic primary health care communication. You know, the health literacy in this country is very poor. And I did a literature review a few years ago looking particularly sexual and collective health knowledge. It's quite apparent that when people don't know how their bodies work, when people don't know how to seek health and seek health care, they do make decisions that are not empowered, right? To make informed decisions, you do need knowledge. And I don't think there's been enough investment, right, in community health. What this country needs is going back to the drone board when it comes to our public health. And one of the things that must happen is that the district health system needs to be strengthened and supporting the community health system and the community health care workers. The other thing is that because many of us are using social media then when the government isn't doing the communication, we then look elsewhere for it. So if there's a vacuum, it will get filled. In this instance, it's getting filled by viral WhatsApp videos that are giving misinformation. It's filled by social media. It's filled by blogs. So you then, as a citizen, do not have right the right amount of insight to be able to see what's a medical journal, what's a blog, what's a misleading website or WhatsApp. And so these things gain traction and momentum, and the misinformation is the one that people are talking about. When you go to the coffee shop, people are showing a clip on WhatsApp. When you go to the kitchen at the office, people are talking about some other random thing. So in the absence of proper, continued, and sustained public health information, this is what happens. Unfortunately, despite having access to all sorts of proper healthcare communicators, it seems that that has been left, you know, when last I heard a proper information around COVID, it's been many months. And in that sense, unfortunately, people rely on whatever else is there. And whatever else is there is not always evidence-based or research-based. And people don't always have your best interest at heart. So to fix that, we need the National Health Department to embark on a mass-wide public health campaign around what is the virus. Because I don't know, like you guys, last year when the adverts were playing on radio, they were just like, oh, coronavirus is here, stay indoors, wash your hands and sanitize. But no one actually said, what is coronavirus? What's a virus? Right? And then the information changed from, oh, okay, open your windows now, it's airborne, so people stopped washing their clothes to read. 
And then we had to start wearing masks. But no one stopped to actually say, this is the actual thing that's happening. We saw PowerPoints on television, but they were all in English. We didn't hear it in Kisoto, in Chizonga, in Chivenda. We didn't hear any of this. So that lack of information for me is what's contributing. And people will fill that vacuum with anything else that they find. And Dr. T, I mean, we are yet to cross this 400,000 mark in terms of the vaccine administration. So people are sitting at home in hopes that they will get inoculated at some point in time. But some people are resorting to alternative homemade remedies. And on our previous show, we did speak about these home remedies and the treatment of COVID-19 and the effectiveness in the protection against the virus. So what would your advice be to people who are now back to taking these Concoctions and the fear that the third wave is looming in the dark. Yeah, I'm gonna just mention concoctions, you know. I don't know if South Africans will ever not have some form of concoction for something. The thing for me that I worry the most is that firstly, you don't know what's in the concoction. You don't know the percentage of whatever that thing is in there. You don't know the side effects of that concoction that could have on your kidneys on your liver, for example, on your heart, right, on your lungs. And if something does go wrong, how are you going to get recourse? Because at night, as a medical doctor, if I give you medication and you get a reaction from it, I'm able to write to the manufacturer or the pharmaceutical and say, we've had an incident with the patient and you are able to get assistance and we sort that out. What a concoction, who are you holding accountable when things go wrong, right? And again, it's because of a failure to communicate. You know, not everything is harmful, right? But it's the quantities and how you use it and for what you use. So I would say to people, rather consult your medical doctor and get the right information as opposed to then just using the concoctions that you find via the WhatsApp chain mail. The other important aspect, which is something that actually even at the UN, you know, we are having discussions about, is the idea that only Western medicine is correct. So I don't believe in that. Like, I'm a Western-trained doctor. But even I know that I'm not always correct. And I know that indigenous health system and indigenous health practitioners have a very important role to play in the healthcare system. But we do need to create, right, and be intentional about creating or removing the mystique from it so that we can start to actually incorporate indigenous health practitioners into primary health care. Because many patients, there was a study done across Africa, up to 80% of people in Africa, before they come to a Western-trained doctor, they've already been to a traditional doctor. So it's no point pretending like our patients are not seeking help with the traditional doctors first. And it's not always that they are the ones who are giving the concoctions, but I'm expanding on that idea that Western medicine is the only correct one. But we do need to be very clear and very intentional about creating a seamless referral, making sure that people understand the sensitivities of the kidneys, how the liver works, all of those important things, and what to do and what not to do for certain conditions. And we have seen some successes, especially when treating STIs and HIV. We have a lot of traditional healers who are able to look and see and say, "Oh, oh, this needs you to go to the hospital or this needs you to go and test for HIV. When you come back, we'll carry on. You see what I'm saying? So mm. it's very important to have those relationships because it really does work and it helps to have that holistic 
care for our patients because that's what patients want. They want physical care, they want spiritual care, and they need to know that we are not belittling any part of who they are. And so I've often had patients who say to me, you know what, Dr. T, I've seen you for one, two, or three things. I'm now on my treatment and I feel really well. I would like to go back and continue my spiritual journey. And they go back, and they don't stop their treatment, and they carry on, and they thrive, and they are well, and vice versa. So it can work. But I think, again, for me, it's an issue of information, and when there's a lack of credible information, people will tend to go and do whatever they have access to, you know? Indeed. So you heard it from the good doctor herself. Please... Go out of your way to consult a medical professional, a trusted medical professional, before you take any kind of concoction, if you're planning to go that route to protect yourself from the virus. Now, doctor, we touched on this earlier in our discussion, but I would like to take this moment to expand on it further, because there's been a lot of conjecture around this looming threat of the third wave. The province of Gauteng has officially been earmarked as the epicenter of this third wave, which puts all of the eyes and all of the attention on the province of Gauteng to see how the stats continue to evolve and update themselves as we continue this fight against this pandemic. In your medical opinion, what do you predict or perceive the impact of this third wave to be? Do you see it being worse or less worse than the first and second waves of the Mm. virus that we've had across the country? Yeah, I don't want to lie. I'm very worried and I'm very scared. And I think because last year, right, all of us had um, sort of a heightened sense of the moment and how serious and scary everything was. And I think we kind of feel like, especially after Christmas, after the January, February, you know, hype, I kind of think we feel a bit like, oh my gosh, we are kind of doing better. And so we are becoming complacent a little bit. I mean, when you go, and I don't, right, when you drive around, you can see no masks. You can see, I mean, and in some of the restaurants, when I ask for windows to be opened, you know, you look like you are just irritating and you are being too much, you know? So I think for me, it's in how in our everyday life, we seem to not take the precautions like washing hands and sanitizing regularly. It's a different story, for example, to people in Etolo or Kotanin or Kokwaka, where they don't even have water. Right? I mean, I timed myself with the Apple Watch. 20 seconds is a long time. 20 seconds is a long time to wash your hands. So when you already don't have that water, to then just say to people, wash your hands regularly, and it's now this time, a year later, those people still have no plan for clean, running, sustainable water. I think it's also very unfair to then just blame them for the disease spreading, if you know what I'm trying to say. But there is a lot, I think, for me in the urban areas, in the cities, in the bigger towns that we can do to just really remind ourselves that we are still in the pandemic. And again, if the government is not communicating to you to remind you all of these things, people, it's human nature. You tend to want to go where there is comfort, where you can just be like, oh, you know what, just for this weekend, let us get together for this weekend, you know? And I can understand that. But it's important to remember that these things are unpredictable. You know, we can predict and say, yes, after large gatherings, there'll be a spike. But that's not a specific thing. So even here, now we hear that the variants from India, four people have tested with that variant. 
we can say yes, of course, more people will have it. I mean, that's just common sense. But the truth of the matter is no one actually knows. This stuff is really difficult. And you really just, in this point in time, because of where we are, we're just going to have to just hope and pray. And hope and prayer is not enough in public health. And I think we are being let down on many different levels. If all we have is now just hope and prayer, when, in fact, there are budgets that are supposed to be there to respond to these disasters, when there are budgets that are there that were supposed to have procured vaccines for us, you know? So, yeah, it's an issue of accountability, and it's quite sad. And I think, for me, I'm hell of a scared. And I think that's why it's important to keep advocating, to keep pushing for the right things to be done. Because health equity, vaccine equity, means that everyone who needs it should have it, regardless of your gender, class, migration status, gender, identity, sexual orientation. It doesn't matter. Everyone should have that access. And right now, no one has that access in this country. And I think that's where the injustice is. That's where the injustice is for me. Yeah, but it's very difficult. And if we do the right thing, we may be okay. But at the level and the slowness of the vaccines and how slow they are coming in, yeah, it's very scary. It is very scary, but I also tend to lean towards putting on what I like to call my defiant optimism hat and say that this gives us renewed spirit to do everything we can to continue to raise awareness, to encourage people to stay safe, to encourage people to wear their masks and put all of the protection measures already put in place to good effect. We have just had some amazing, wholesome, insightful conversation here on the COVID report, courtesy of our amazing guest, the indomitable Dr. Kaleng Mufugeng, affectionately known as Dr. T, who among many other things that I will list in a few, is also the author of a best-selling book. Her book, A Guide to Sexual Health and Pleasure, is out at your nearest bookstore. Go out of your way and get yourself a copy. She is the current United Nations special rapper Again, that prayer. On the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, she is a medical doctor at the Disa Clinic in Johannesburg with a focus on sexual and reproductive health and rights as well as a senior lecturer and broadcaster. And she's just joined us here on the COVID Report to talk us through this issue of the waiving of intellectual property rights as it relates to the vaccine being produced to aid the fight against COVID-19. Dr. T, it's been an absolute honor to have you as a guest on the this show. Thank you so much for your time and your valuable insight that you've shared on this matter. And we look forward to the next opportunity we will have to have you as a guest on the show. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or streams via www.varfm.co.za.